as we travel through the season of Lent and we come closer to the cross event on Good Friday and the resurrection event on Easter, we are reminded in the lectionary text of the import of just that cross and resurrection. This morning's passage from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi in Philippians 3, beginning in actually the second verse through the 14th verse, Paul is writing really to the most intimate relationship with the church that he has among all the churches. In many ways, Paul saw the church at Philippi as his child, and they saw him as their father. In everything he writes, he writes in the context that they are dealing with, and it is a context that for them I will explain, but it is also a context that for us is germane as well. Hear the words as they are lifted up in this epistle. Paul uses some graphic language here. For instance, beware of the dogs. It is metaphor. It is the worst thing you can call someone. It is a metaphor he's using for, you will hear, those who have now invaded the church at Philippi saying that you must be circumcised in order to be included in God's kingdom. He said, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh, talking about circumcision, but also spiritual flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. For Paul, the flesh was the human propensity to think that we are what we do to earn our own keep, the way we keep score and the way we merit ourselves. That's living by the flesh according to some standard that is set. We must meet in every way. For Paul, that's living by the flesh. Even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh, for if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the elite tribes, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have faced the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish. Literally, the the word is excrement. It's dog dung. I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. Or it can be interpreted, one that comes through faith, the faith of Christ. That is not only my faith in Christ, but Christ's faith of and for us. This is the righteousness from God based on faith. 
then he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Last week I had the privilege of being able to attend Fountain City Presbyterian Church in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I was allowed by the session and the pastor there to baptize our grandchild, Finnegan Joseph Fox. And then I was told that I could say anything I wanted to after the baptism and that it was appropriate to walk down the aisle with Finnegan in my arms, which I did. He was a perfect child. He sat perfectly right here with his feet out and his head up right in my crook of my arm. And as I walked, everyone watched him, and I began to preach, always with the opportunity I also understood that I had a limited amount of time because the aisle wasn't very long. But I walked slowly. And what I said was that I am so grateful for being in this Presbyterian church that believes in infant baptism. Because infant baptism is the theological claim that we make that God claims us regardless of our ability to claim God. It confirms the fact that this child, this big boy, Finn, has done absolutely nothing to deserve being baptized. He is absolutely clueless clueless of what it's about. This is a gift of God that has come to him freely and unconditionally simply because God loves him and has claimed this child as God's own son. And then I started really preaching by saying, you know what, I am so grateful to have this church to be able to hand Finn back to because I know you understand the meaning of this. And it is your job to raise and nurture him in this faith and to remind him at all times that he is God's child no matter what, whether he deserves it or not. As I said, it was not a long aisle, but I walked slowly. And I continue to add to that, you know, we live in a world that is based on our merit and our accomplishments. That's the way we grade ourselves on how we do things and what we do. Our value is based on that sort of meritocracy, whether it's economic or athletic or academic, social, racial, every way we do it, we set up a hierarchy of value. That's the culture and the society that we live in. We do it in the church. You are either, well, I mean, you either tithe or you don't. You either come or you don't. We used to hand out pens, remember, of 
how many consecutive Sundays you have been to church uh, as a sort of hierarchical standard of grading ourselves. Whether you're graded by the outside or not, we grade ourselves on the inside by feeling guilty if we don't go to church. Well, I know you do because you tell me. But nobody's grading us on that basis according to infant baptism. For God loves us whether we come to church or not. God claims and calls us as God's own whether we live up to that claim or not. God loves us unconditionally. How can I put it any more clearly? That's what infant baptism is all about. And it also then claims the church to raise the child in faith so that he under, and she understands that. Now, this was so important to me personally because it was Finn, but it was also important to me professionally. And it struck me that this is exactly the same posture Paul had when he was writing to the church at Philippi. He loved them dearly. He had formed that church. He had birthed that church, and they loved him back. But he had received word in his absence. He's actually in prison in Ephesus when he writes this letter. He had received word in his absence that preachers, Jewish preachers, had come to the church at Philippi and told them, yes, it's, it's, you're right, God does love you, and you have been claimed in your baptism, but... In order for you to be really inside the kingdom of God, then you have to follow the Mosaic law. And for males, that means you must be circumcised. Paul calls them dogs. He calls them dogs because he's laying on them this religious layer of obligation that imposes upon them the very opposite of what he was trying to tell them which is to say, unless we do this, circumcision, purity laws, mosaic laws, we are not in or loved by God. Out of the vacuum of Paul's absence comes the religious authorities. And the religious authorities always like to impose layer after layer of obligation and law about what you need to do in order to be in. That's why Paul was always the source for the church of going back to the Reformation because Paul says there's nothing we can do to be in. We're already in by virtue of God's act in Jesus Christ on the cross. We are in. It is the acclamation and proclamation that God loves us already. And we haven't done squat Paul had this professional and personal sense of wanting to tell those in Philippi, God loves you. You don't have to follow these mosaic laws. That's not to say that they did not follow the law, but it's to say what comes what first and what is the motive? What is the motive? Now, Paul was graphic, as I said, 
But he's graphic because he knows what it means to follow the law and to live by the flesh, thinking that somehow living that way, he would achieve what he most deeply hungered for. He was perfect as a Jew. Born the tribe of Benjamin. Circumcised on the eighth day. Brought up a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, that is to say a judge a lawyer who knew the law backwards and forwards and administered it. And then he says, I was righteous as to blamelessness. He is an insider who knows what it means to live by the flesh and to try to find that sense of his, his own beingness, his own acceptance by living that way. And, and until that moment when Christ called him by name on the road, he had no idea that there was any other way. But then he heard his name called, and in hearing that name, he was struck existentially, personally, theologically, intellectually, and physically by the incredible love of God in Jesus Christ. And he came to say, as he did in this text, all of that that I had earned and gained, I count as rubbish compared to the immeasurable love of God in Christ Jesus. Most of the way we hear convergence stories, it it goes something like, I was a no good, no count, down and out, drunk, lying in the gutter with nothing but an empty bottle of Thunderbird when the whole darkness began to close in on me, but yet I got this one little glimmer of light that God loved me no matter what, and at that point that gave me the hope to step up and get back into life. And many of us have probably been converted in that way, maybe not that radically, but in a similar way, we were down and out. But for Paul, he wasn't down and out. He was on the top of the heap. This is what he's willing to give up is not really bad. It is great according to all the standards that you gauge yourself by. Everything he had was at the top. And he says, looking back, it's rubbish. Rubbish. I wonder if Paul would understand the circumcision moment in his day in a way that would make it relevant for our day, or if we can understand the circumcision emphasis now. About eight or ten years ago, I guess, there was a movement in the mainline church called the confessional movement that wanted to go back to the fundamentals of faith. And their fundamentals were four. I can't ever remember the fourth. One of which is that we, procl- that, that we confess the inerrant and literal Bible as being absolutely literally true. That we confess that Jesus was the Son of God uh, and the only way to salvation. That we confess uh, that we believe in the virgin birth Uh, And I've forgotten the fourth. Out of that movement began, as I said, this confessional movement. And basically it was, if you were willing to confess those four things, then you will be in the fold. I think, whether you believe that and confess that or not, okay. But my sense is, if you use those confessions as the line of demarcation of whether you are in or out, it is the same thing as the Judaizers using circumcision as to whether you are in or out. 
Paul says, no. No. There is nothing you can do, he says, that has not already been done in Jesus Christ. This is our spiritual imperative as a church. This proclamation is what we have to proclaim to every single person. That that's, that's, this love of God is so immensely unconditional that God loves us with an everlasting, steadfast love that God is willing to send His Son to die on the cross, not to satisfy God, but to satisfy our need to know that we are loved by God and accepted. This is our proclamation, our imperative, our spiritual imperative. And then he says this. No sooner had he done this, God to us, then he says there's a social imperative too, and that's how we are to each other. God has acted for us. Now how are we supposed to act? If we have received God's gift, does it matter how we live? Do we give it back? Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, he said earlier in this book of Philippians. Make your life a life of perfect love and grace, he says, as Jesus was. Not that I have already obtained this. It's, it's never obtainable on this end of life. Not that I have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because of Christ Jesus, who has made me his own. If you ran in the river run yesterday, you know that running is not an easy process. Your temples throb, your heart beats, your skin perspires, you draw as deep a breath as you can to make it over the heart bridge. It is a race that takes enormous amount of stamina. This is exactly the metaphor Paul is using for the life of faith. Having been claimed and loved by God and Jesus Christ, we are now given the commission and the calling to go out and love others as God has loved us. To the hungry, we offer food. To the homeless, we offer shelter. To the imprisoned, we offer company. To the migrant and the immigrant, the down and out, we offer shelter. Because we are migrants and immigrants and down and out when it comes to receiving God's enormous grace. This is our social imperative. I watched a man try to do this one day. He was so grateful for God's love for him that he decided one day I'm going to set aside this day to wake up and try to be a blessing to every single person I meet. Started with his cat, then his wife. He held his tongue. He wanted to be a blessing. To the person at the Lowe's checkout, he had a smile and a word of encouragement to his colleagues at work who probably didn't deserve a blessing at the time. He said, I went out of my way to say, how would Jesus be now in this presence of this person and be a blessing? And he, and, and he reached the end of his day and he looked back and he said two things. One, I feel better about myself 
and I feel closer to God. And two, I feel worse about myself, and I feel farther from God. Because he saw in looking back all of the places of being a blessing that he had missed. And that's the second truth. In seeing what we've missed, we re-experience one more time what infant baptism is all about. This morning we are about to ordain and install our new officers, elders, and deacons. You have a charge here, and that charge is to maintain the mission to proclaim the spiritual imperative that God loves us in Jesus Christ unconditionally and to help manage the ministry of this church where we are to equip each other to go out and serve the world as Jesus Christ does. Spiritual, social imperative. As we have conversations around the church about whether or not we should replace our organ or reconfigure our chancel or sell some land or build a total life center, the underlying question that must be asked is always this. Does this enhance our spiritual imperative and our social imperative? Not that we would do it in order to keep up with some standard out there of other churches doing it or some standard out there of what is good music or some standard out there of what it takes to bring in more people. The question for the church is, is it our spiritual and social mandate according to the imperative that we have? That must be answered. 